This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 14, Distribution, with Brian Fife, Tom Westberg, and Jim Fingal. This is the Game Theory Podcast. I'm Jim. I'm Brian. And I'm Tom. This is Distribution. Tom, you're going to be leading this one, right? Um, I guess so. And as usual, going back to the Dark Ages, in the beginning, there was the arcade. And... <laughs> Before we dive too deep in, let's, <laughs> talk, let, let's talk about this a little bit. We touched on the subject of distribution a few times in the past, but haven't done a full survey. And it's something that all of us think about a lot, right? The way that these games get to people and the way that developers are abstracted from the process, the barriers that exist all have a big impact on what the gaming landscape looks like, right? Yeah. How can I get more games and how can I become a millionaire when I decide to to make them? And how can I play games for free and never have to pay anybody? Or where do I find out about games? That's that's you know, that's strictly true distribution. But and more recently, where do I find other people to play with? Yeah. I mean, distribution channels certainly have a lot to do with finding games. Uh, the the browsability of something like like Steam versus uh, the browsability of something like Blockbuster Video, or the browsability of an arcade and meeting people there. And I know they don't exist anymore, but that used to happen. Oh, they exist, but they're uh, they're for adults only. Now. They're now Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, well, Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and Buster's. The other thing that's really interesting to me, and, and I, I alluded to this earlier, is the idea that just like in the early days of music, some executive needed to sign off on a game concept and, and the game itself before it could get to people's uh, doors. And that's thankfully no longer the case. Early distribution of games, ultimately the players went through arcades and the players paid a quarter at a time. The game manufacturers built a box and they sold it to distributors and distributors sold it to an operator and finally that you got to play it. Um, the games got to be reused. They moved from one location to another going downscale over the years. Pinball machines had done this before video games. What do you mean by downscale? Downscale meaning you'd start off in your, your best arcade which made the, the most money and then uh, when you ran out of room for games or had better new games that earned more, you'd move the older game to a pizza parlor or to some dingy bar. Yeah, similar to like how, you know, Captain Blood's downtown had the the blockbuster movies from two years ago. Exactly. Of course, the difference there is unless uh, they they, uh, are pirating the, the movies, that in this case, the operator owned the physical cabinet and it was just fine for... Uh, him to move it from one location to another, so that he got to to reuse it. And th- then later in in an arcade game uh, life cycle, their upgrade kits became a- available. Sometimes to convert a cabinet to an entirely new game, and sometimes it'd keep a game a, a little longer, um, earning money like Super Missile Attack uh, did for Missile Command. Although there really weren't a lot of those. One of the things we talked about when we were doing arcade was the idea that there wasn't a lot of standardization in these hardware platforms, right? In the beginning, at least. In the beginning, there was deliberately no uh, standardization, at least on the part of Atari. 
they made a point of making every arcade logic board deliberately different with a different wiring harness and so forth because they explicitly didn't want operators just swapping things into a cabinet. It, I think this was probably a self-defeating policy and the, the Japanese did not follow it, um, but that was uh, very much Atari's uh, design style in the 70s and the 80s. There were a couple of companies that actually, I, I think Nolan Bushnell, after he had sold Atari to Warner Communications, started an arcade game company called Sente. And part of their reason for being was that the, that the arcade games they sold were convertible from one game to another. But they really never had any killer games themselves. They were more the hardware company without the software to run on it. So Bushnell pretty much, as far as I recall, never never recaptured that magic that he had the first time around with Atari. And when you mean the, they could put new games on it, is it is that like putting a new cartridge I in think it, it, it had cartridges in it, yes. Um, they were much larger cartridges than, than uh, console cartridges, which also somewhat existed at the time for Atari 2600 and Nintendo NES and eventually Sega. But to use an inappropriate analogy, in the same way that you could, you know, slap a coprocessor on a board in an early computer or put a booster on or do these things that they did with like early Macs and early uh, XT PCs, that sort of thing, you could slap a card into, let's just say, for example, Pac-Man and turn it into Ms. Pac-Man and, and modify it that way. You theoretically could do that. In fact, Ms. Pac-Man was designed that way, but it was never sold that way. Ms. Pac-Man was designed by the people who did Super Missile Attack to to upgrade Missile Command. They did this follow-on to to Pac-Man to do the same way, but instead of selling it directly to operators, they sold it to Midway, who had the U.S. distribution rights from Namco for uh, Pac-Man. And Midway had realized that they'd sold Pac-Man for about a year and they really needed a follow-on and didn't have one in the pipeline. And these college kids came in and offered them something. And they said, great. And in a month or two, they went into production with a new cabinet artwork and the original Pac-Man board in there and a little extra card sitting to the side of it. So Ms. Pac-Man was internally an upgrade to Pac-Man. In fact, if you if you took out the little upgrade card from a Ms. Pac-Man and just moved the processor chip over, it would play the original Pac-Man game just with Ms. Pac-Man graphics. So all the benefits of uh, plug-and-play for the distributor. Except it was deliberately kept from the distributor. Again, this this is the the, the recurring theme here is, I would say, uh, probably self-destructive greed of the, the game manufacturers. Atari did it. Midway did it. They, they deliberately did not want the distributors or the operators to be able to leverage the cabinets any more than they could. At that time, they really resented the fact that these, are, these stupid cabinets uh, uh, stayed alive and earning for the operators for three, four, five years. They would much prefer they went away quickly. And it's, it's very similar to the modern-day game developers who really resent the used game market and think many evil thoughts about ways to, to stop it. Yeah, I think any, any content producer, if they had their druthers, would 
not a lot, not have a thriving used market or even a valid used market behind the uh, the whole the whole thing, right? I they, most would prefer it that way. I, I'm not an economist to know whether it's it inevitable that it's a good or a bad thing, but it's certainly what a human nature to try to do it. Yeah, I remember that there was a in the the scope of these things there was a, a funny uh, talk at PAX where the creator of Burning Wheel, a, a tabletop RPG game made a joke about the fact that you know in his line of work he makes a game that you can play with as many people as you want forever uh and and how that you know maybe wasn't the best uh marketing strategy for a, a content yeah if the games are as good as as you want them to be then people really don't need that many of them in their life right yeah <laughs> yeah so what's next? The early home consoles, right? Right. Then obviously overlapping arcade, there were the home consoles. And the the console itself was one sale. And originally, they, I think they were the hardware was profitable from day one. And then the, they also sold the cartridges. An Atari 2600 cartridge in the early 80s was about 25 bucks, uh, although it cost them 3 or $4 to, to make. Was it $2580? Yes. So in $2580s dollars, but you know, that they they still had decent margin. And according to Wikipedia, uh, Atari wholesaled it for around $18. So they they definitely did very well by that. And again, following the we want everything closed theme, Atari really had no intention to allow anybody to develop a third-party 2600 game. They kept all of the design documents trade secret, and Activision and, and iMagic were the first two that I recall cartridge companies that either reverse-engineered the way to program the 2600 or they got illicit documentation under the table. If I recall, they were sued over it, but but they won. They claimed they Clean room reverse engineered it, and so so there ended up being an actual third party cartridge market, and Atari got no cut of that. Nintendo learned from Atari's foolish generosity and actually had an anti copying chip added to the Nintendo Entertainment System cartridge, which was partially there to keep uh, people from doing uh, clone uh, cartridges with just. The, just another ROM in them because there was a big market for that in, in Asia. But it was also so that uh, third-party game uh, companies couldn't create them. And then they set up a license program where they got a licensing fee and they also controlled how many of a, a competitor's cartridge could ever go to market and when it would be phased off the market and so forth. And that that control, once Nintendo figured out how to do it, has stayed there for uh, game consoles, home game consoles, to this day. Sony followed it. Microsoft followed it. Somebody might correct me. I recall a number on the order of of $15 out of a $50 game disc goes to the console manufacturer, Sony or Microsoft, today. And they, they also still today control the distribution. And if they decide that there are too many games in in GameStop or whatever, they will stop approving new games or they will take older games uh, off the market. Of course, GameStop will sell used games and that really frustrates uh, Sony and Microsoft and EA and all of those. Well, we've, before we dig into the used thing, just to underscore this, I think a lot of people will look at the 
market for games even from the early Nintendo days and say, oh, there's a bunch of people, they're, they're participating in this, it's an active market, there are good games and there are bad games. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that Nintendo approves and certifies every title that, that gets out on those platforms. Including the bad games. And if you, well, and if you think that the, apps, the Apple App Store, these other things are draconian and, and uh, fickle and evil, it's, there's no comparison to, to the, the process that these guys run. And somehow they approve deadly towers. <laughs> yes, right. they they definitely they approve really bad games. Uh, they they also have it, they also deliberately make it very expensive, so only large companies can get into the programs, or at least that was the original way. And most recently, Microsoft uh, broke that, but uh, with with Xbox three hundred and sixty. But but that's when we get into to the dis- digital distribution on consoles later. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, you know, these guys are doing a lot of certification and doing QA testing and all that stuff and providing kits, but uh, it's still... <laughs> right, they do QA testing and and they charge a whole lot for it, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Continuing back into the early era of, of home consoles, home PCs, starting with floppy disks and then CD-ROMs and, and DVDs were pretty good game uh, game machines, and then obviously it became much better. We've, we've talked about that in other podcasts. But you'd, you'd buy a packaged disc from a GameStop or a Best Buy today, and through the years, those discs have had lots of different anti-copying schemes. So that was, that was their big thing, is how do I keep all of these greedy uh, or, or cheap 14-year-old kids from sticking their floppy in their their friend's floppy disk in one drive and another floppy disk in another drive and just doing a disk copy and and so forth. So they they would do things like uh, have bad blocks at specific places and and uh, all sorts of obscure things which would break in bad ways that that were were never expected. They also did more creative uh, ways to. Uh, instead of being really digital rights management, it was to establish some value to the game other than the thing you got on the, your screen. So I recall Infocom would have some of their text adventure games be sold with things in the box that were physical artifacts that were important to the gameplay. Uh, and they might be some sort of map or clue book or just a, a little toy or tchotchke that it was in in some way useful to making your way through the game. Yeah, like the the Carmen San Diego games definitely had that. And the most wick, the most wicked uh, copy protection were the ones that said, you know, turn turn to page thirty two of the manual and enter the fifth word. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember those. <laughs> right, and of course today you just go online to do it. But but in in the eighties and nineties that was much harder to get around. More recently, uh, MMOs require server connections, and and they also disallow resale. Uh, so this is uh, the most robust uh, DRM that that uh, computer games can have, probably, and and are the first to pretty safely keep the players from selling uh, old games. That certainly and made then, an impression on Blizzard, didn't it? Yes, Blizzard decided that was such a great thing that they were going to do it on Diablo three, even though it was a, uh, mostly a single player game. And that's preventing me from playing the alpha for for months because I didn't have internet in my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> and 
I don't know of anybody who's followed on in, in Activision's footsteps there. It was a success, I guess, to the extent that it was Diablo 3 and it didn't have any choice. There were enough fanboys like me who were, who were going to go for it, even if we were slightly offended by that. But I wonder if uh, anybody else is going to do that again. Well, apparently the new SimCity is going to do that. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, if EA can do it, geez, anybody can. Mm-hmm. Uh, our home PC game pricing seems to always track just behind console game prices. When 2,600 cartridges were $25, PC games were 15 to $20 and so forth. And now console games are 60 bucks, and you'll usually find computer games being $10 behind. Well, it isn't always for some reason the PS3 version of the game 10 bucks more than the Xbox one. Yes. Now, I suspect that that $10 is from EA's perspective going straight to Sony. Oh no, well, actually I'm not sure. I think Xbox often is $60, but you may be right. I'm I'm not sure if Sony manages to 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 get more. Yeah, so you know, looking on Amazon right now, I mean, the list price for Assassin's Creed 3 is list price 60 bucks for both PS3 and Xbox 360 and 50 bucks for the PC version. Yeah, that's so that's my expectation. A, a bunch of them the PS3 and and Xbox 360 is is you know basically on par. I think often the Xbox version is more you can get it more discounted, you know, the de facto Amazon price. Another thing that's that you know interesting to to think about also for uh, you know we're talking about distribution and and you mentioned you know you go to GameStop or Best Buy to get the games but most of the PC games early PC games that I got were bought from small independent egghead software type places Uh, the the consolidation of uh, outlets that sell computers and computer software and computer games had not really reached the 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 point that it is today until i'm you know i'm not sure when well i mean computer games have all but faded from the main uh game stores uh except for the the most sort of premium titles like wow or the um the the skyrims of the world right from like game stores as in like like gamestop no, GameStop, like GameStop or, or Best Buy. Or, yeah, those yes. ones. Yeah, but the the other thing is, is it time now for us to talk about the used games and the way that those that those stores manage that? Because I, I think so. Yes. I was, you know, as a as a primarily a, a PC gamer, going into one of these stores and looking at the way that they just ran the outfit was shocking. I, I couldn't believe that anybody put up with that. I, I guess they they still had enough hand in the game as far as being the gateway to end users that they could do it, but. What, many years for many years right jim these guys are running a their system in the way that like the day after a game came out they would be offering it seemed like used games that were 10 bucks less or five bucks less than the new one well uh, it's also like i've i've definitely like brought new games up to the counter at gamestop and and they said oh don't buy a used copy it's guaranteed you can bring it back if it doesn't work it's it's a little bit cheaper and get me to put back a new game so that I will buy one of their used games. Yeah, when it's it's sort of become, and the the way comic books are like this because of the way the distribution works. But you know they they push pre-orders as hard as they can, 
and that's partly yeah, probably that's because sure. of the the distributors and partly because of them and then after that you know it's all about the used market yeah i i've got to say now as much as i value the right of players to resell their games i have generally felt that gamestop has turned into a video game pawn shop uh and that that it just feels so tawdry going in there it, seeing lots of of generic uh, green boxes or or black boxes with a, a laser printed slip cover really that doesn't present that well when i feel really i feel really really guilty buying a used game for 5 bucks less than a new one because i understand what that does to the people that make the games right the the game manufacturer got zero of that gamestop got Actually, the reason they're doing it is because they got a higher margin. Because when they bought it from somebody, bought it back from somebody, they bought it back for you know way less. I am glad you can sell and buy used games, and I'm not going to be happy if Sony and the PS4 really does that uh, chip on the optical disc to lock it to a console. That said, I don't personally value the the market, and in some ways. I think it has hurt the overall game shopping experience. I mean, my my first copy of Final Fantasy One was a used game, but I bought it from the kid down the street. <laughs> that's also that, a, that I think is great. That's the yeah, right. I mean, that, that's a distribution model that has also, I think, for the most part, be, because of how easy it is to get games now, gone uh, by the wayside. But I mean, most of the games that I, f- I feel like I got growing up were they're either from other people or I think also use games, but not from a place like GameStop. Use games from a place where I could rent games like a Blockbuster or Paradise Video in, in, in my case. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't have a problem with stores like the iOS App Store because the benefits that you get from moving to a lease or whatever it is they use to, to couch the, the way that you access the software is worth it. But trying to lock down the games without giving the user anything in return and still demanding the old margins as before, that doesn't work for me either. Yeah, I don't think it, GameStop really helps the player all that much, and their approach definitely hurts the source developers. Of course, there are billions of dollars being moved around, and I guess you have to expect people to try to maximize their part of it. So then PC gaming more recently moved into to doing dis- digital distribution, and, and frankly, this is the, the part of it that is has been most interesting to me. Earliest I could find was Stardock Central, uh, which later became Impulse and, of course, got stole to, sold to GameStop, so... Oh, there you can kiss that one goodbye. Uh, and they they did games on it with, starting in 2003. Steam from uh, Valve came out in 2002, and originally was just to distribute their own games. And then they started uh, allowing third parties to uh, distribute games through Steam. And now I, I think they're pretty much EA's got something and such, but I think Steam seems to me to be the juggernaut in, in dig- digital distribution. They not only have uh, a great model for promoting games and having very interesting sales and so forth, but they've added social features so you can find other 
your your friends online and talk to them, set up multiplayer games. They have seem to have done just about everything right. Yeah, well, it's interesting because there's there's the interesting mix there, right? Where to play your games, you have to open up the Steam console, whereas you can get games from GOG.com, but you're not opening a GOG client to to play the game, right? That's true. Steam does essentially add DRM to games, and and there are plenty of people who are uh, uh, turned off by that, and so there are going to be good alternatives to it, but I suspect those alternatives are just not going to be as large financially simply because Steam is making guarantees to the manufacturers. One of the reasons it's okay for a manufacturer to allow one of their older games to be sold for 10 bucks on Steam is, well, for one thing, you know, it can't be resold. So while you might have gotten uh, selling the, that as a disc remaindered through Best Buy for, for $20, although you get considerably less than that, it could get resold again and, and undercut itself. Whereas on Steam, that $10 is there, and if somebody else wants that, that old game, they're going to pay another $10. So I, I think that's part of the value proposition that Steam people present to the game designer manufacturers, which, which probably has real value. And I think there are some guys you know, working in the offices at, at Steam, at Valve, that understand the psychology of discount and the way people respond to that better than almost anybody else in the market. Uh, they've really, I think, cracked the code as far as how to get people to, to hit the button. It's something I spend a lot super of super discount sale. Yeah, something I spend a lot of time talking about at, at work or have in the past is this idea that there are only a few really genuinely trusted stores in the market today as we've moved to digital. And and the the examples that I like to give that are the most solid in my experience are Steam for games and Amazon Kindle for books. Yes, and interestingly, Kindle can do the exact same thing for book publishers again. You can't resell the stupid book. So the fact that that they paid for it theoretically less once shouldn't hurt them. Now, the fact is the book publishers um, have pushed back really hard. And and Kindle books, by and large, aren't that much less expensive than their physical counterparts. That, as I understand it, is a a function of their, their fear of lowering the perceived value of a Stephen King novel or whatever altogether. And, and there, there may be something uh, real to that, a, a marketing economics component that I don't, I don't understand. But that's, that's the logic that I've read. Steam manages to do it. They, they also, as, as you, you pointed out, they, they do it as these little point sales. You, you can't know that Assassin's Creed is going to come back for $10 in, in another week or in another month and so forth. If you missed it, too bad. And that frustration is likely to make you really more interested in the next sale that's even close to, to, to tickling your interest bone there. Yeah, to close this, this sidebar off, the other you know, real difference between Amazon and, and Steam is that the infrastructure behind the Kindle store is kind of, kind of a wreck. In the sense that they they have no good way of pushing a new game out, where the guys at Steam are constantly upgrading and patching games, and once you buy in, one of the nice things you get from the system is that you never have to explicitly update a game again. 
So Steam does a couple more things that are are uh, are useful. One essentially, like say like Netflix, when uh, they they provide a long tail access to old games, way below their original price, and but it's a zero marginal cost to the manufacturer. So why not? And you can you can play a five or an eight year old game. Uh, it's there, and it's going to be very cheap. So that's great. And then most recently, the uh, Steam folks have started to encourage the indie scene. Obviously, the any indie developer could set up a website on his own, and you know, here's my lemonade stand. Come in, ten cents for a cup. But nobody's going to find him, and you know, they'll get talked about a little bit. But essentially, you're 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 not in Walmart, and Steam is Walmart of of video games, and the fact that they're they're now uh, they have a, an indie section has I think real value. And when the first Humble Indie Bundle came out, and they gave you a Steam code, I mean that was the thing that pushed me over the tipping point with that package. They give you a, a Steam code to download it on. Steam. So you bought the thing outside of the Steam system, but then they give you a code and you type it into your Steam client, and all the games download. But I mean that's another benefit to Steam, which may seem obvious today with the the way things work with both Steam and and the the app store but it is kind of nice to when you get a new computer to download one app and have all of your games downloaded at pressing one button which was something that was a huge pain in the ass uh, previously when upgrading computers oh yeah not only finding the disks but also if the the code yeah you know you had a key code to type in as well and right. if that got separated from the media you were screwed if you lost the fifth word on page 34 <laughs> yes. yeah yeah, that's actually the the, the flip side of uh, not being able to resell it is that you are pretty much automatically reselling it to yourself from one machine to another in in, in a way that's really easy to to, to do and and that's an advantage. So uh, just to finish on on digital distribution on the home PC, there are loads of of web games. Puzzle pirates like things and so forth, free to play and self-contained things like World of Tanks. Those are essentially the manufacturers never want to go near a physical store and don't see a reason to because they know by definition you're getting to them through the internet. And so, so why should anybody have to pay for a disc? Consoles then, when did Xbox Live Arcade start? Was it five years ago? Uh, Microsoft was the first out with real digital distribution with their horrible Microsoft points. December 3rd, 2004. Okay. And then um, PlayStation Store uh, with its... I will just not have any comment about it. It, it, They they also supported buying old PS2 games on your PS3 and and Nintendo uh, letting you buy Super Nintendo or Nintendo 64 games on your... Uh, we, and those were were pretty good. But for quite a while, all of those were very carefully curated. Xbox Live Arcade early on would actually take older games offline, so there was not such a thing as a long tail. For whatever reason, they felt that that having the catalog be too big. Well, that may have been their motivation. Well, part of it there was may have the, been others. The, the discovery was really difficult on these consoles. I don't think they had a good way to guide you to games or to sift through them, right? I mean, that's certainly a problem with the uh, PlayStation Store today. It's like, good luck trying to find a game you're looking for. It's true, but I mean, the notion of Geometry Wars ever 
getting too old to buy was just absurd. That, I mean, that's, that was, sort of, that's sort of wacko, yeah. Right. What they need is a subject matter expert in recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> Call me. <laughs> yes. Well, what, as, as a, a funny bit of trivia, I didn't know this previously, but Krista told me that she had the Sega channel uh, growing up, uh, which was actually something you could plug into your Sega Genesis, and it was hooked up through your cable system, and something like every month it would download 50 games that you could play. Uh, on your on your Genesis, I recall that era. That was also the era of Time Warner's Cube. Uh, they figured they were going to do, do, do a distribution through the cable system, and so forth. at this point, of course, you had the really greedy cable operators trying to insert themselves, and they felt that they owned the uh, consumer as they as they do today. So that really never never caught on. I think Sega also had something for the Saturn that uh, yep. tried to get online, but was mostly to be able to, to play sort of multiplayer game stuff. Yeah, there are a few. I've, after I read about the Sega channel, I looked this up, and I mean, Atari had game line for the 2600 where you plugged in a telephone line and you could download games to it. Lots of There are lots of experiments for different consoles that you never heard of because they never really panned out or... Uh, sometimes they're only in Japan, or there is a proof of concept to it. Probably a few people in a few different parts of the country were very familiar with it, but they're pretty obscure, but but definitely precursors to you know what the rest of the world and what I until a few weeks ago thought was something invented by the Xbox. Yep. And and the, the last phase that I know of or have have, have thought of in, in uh, game distribution would be mobile, uh, iOS and Android. And Apple, I think, pretty clearly pioneered this by opening up the App Store and setting a pricing policy that said free is fine or a dollar is fine and so forth. And games pretty quickly early on in the iPhone's Life ran five to ten dollars with, with the old game companies trying to sell things for twenty bucks, but it didn't work very well. And now lots of them have have gone down to one or two dollars for a, a paid game, or plenty of of things like Temple Run and so forth that make money by being free to play. And then games that SquareSoft puts out that are still sometimes twenty dollars. Right, and and. It's, this may just be, you know, everybody I know ignores those things, but I, I have a hard time believing that their revenue with those twenty dollars games on an iPhone or iPad is actually very high. Now I don't know it would be higher if they sold it for five, but I think the reason they don't do it is that they same reason the book publishers won't let. Amazon sell Kindle books below much below their hardback price when they're new books. They are they fear the uh, that our perceived value of a Final Fantasy game will will go way down if we can buy even a very old one yeah. for three or five. Chaos rings. I mean, they've also got a problem because the same team that's marketing on the iOS platform is selling on the Nintendo DS and on the the Vita or whatever the latest. Sony thing is, and they're still charging a ridiculous amount of money for those games yes. on, on the on the handhelds, and that's sort of 
one of the reasons why it's it's hard to believe that they're going to be around for much longer. I mean, there's a great experience on those games, but how can you justify buying, and the Penny Arcade guy said this very well, how can you justify buying one game for $50 when you can buy 25 games for $2? You'll probably end up ahead with the 25 games. Yes, though there's always going to be that gotta have it game. But there's there's no question that the fact that mobile has lowered the expected price for a quite good short game to to two or three dollars is changing our view uh we we don't need something that's going to take 80 hours to finish uh that we spend 50 dollars on because after all you might spend that 50 dollars and say it may take 80 hours to finish but i don't really like it. Whereas if you decide after playing for half an hour on a $2 game that you didn't really like it, well, you're probably indignant, but it, it, it's still only $2. It changed the mathematics where, you know, the justification for expensive games used to be, well, well, I spend, you know, more than, you know, six times the, the length of a, of a movie when I go to the movies and the ticket costs 10 bucks. Now it's, well, I got a dollar game and I could play three hours for that. <laughs> is it worth going to the movies? Yeah. And I think, well, the shortening of gameplay time isn't completely independent from the move to, you know, your phone. It certainly has accelerated that trend of people trying to figure out how to make good short games in part because they can monetize. And I, from the perspective, you know, going back to our roots as a podcast, from the perspective of the player getting a gaming experience, I actually think having a large number of somewhat different game experiences for you know a fraction of the price is probably better for us overall than sitting in there in a single MMO, you know, heads down and, and staying there as as I think Tobold put it at six thousand hours he might have spent on World of Warcraft was probably cheaper for him than paying $3 for the iOS game 10 million, which lasted under 10 hours. But he had a really good time. And you're going from one thing to another to another and, and not really feeling in a, in a rut. He pointed out that not all of that 6,000 hours was uh, quality gameplay time. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things and where the you know the impulse buy comes in, but also just the the variety of types of games uh, you have access to in something like the App Store, uh, and particularly you know, smaller games or indie games. For me, that's the most compelling thing that gets me to you know buy a bunch of games, which is what they all want us to do. Is that it's a combination there? You have access to very different games. And they're not super expensive. Yeah. So the Android App Store pretty much removed the few barriers that there were on, even on the Apple Store. Uh, they coincidentally happen to make piracy easier but because side loading doesn't require apps to be signed. From Google's perspective, that's great because they encourage free ad-based games. And this pushes pricing down a bit and, and such. But I'm I'm curious, do you find... Or, or do you believe the Android ecosystem is better for the indie game scene than the iOS system? I don't. I it feels a little bit like the the fake indie games, or maybe they're real indie games, but the B indie games in 
uh, Xbox Live where it's just a, a deluge of knockoffs and yeah, Minecraft and uh, my Minecraft and. <laughs> <laughs> and, may, but, and maybe that's a discovery problem too with the the store where if Apple makes it extremely easy for you to find the highest quality games where maybe I've only had crappy Android phones and I haven't had a really high powered Android device but I've I've never f- found it particularly easy to uh, like the, the top games are always things that involve matching three things I can't think of a game that I've played outside of like Urquan Masters or something really bizarre that isn't really a good experience on the mobile to begin with that I have purchased or got on Android where there isn't either the same game on iOS or a better version of the game on iOS. Yeah, it's like Andrew Minion is the probably the game I played the most on Android and that, you know, that's interesting because it probably couldn't have came out for the App Store. Ingress is a interesting phenomenon i think that's only out for android right but that's not even widely available yet right yeah i think that's still still invite get it from the the app store <laughs> or for, sorry get it from the place uh no but google look at this cora says google has announced that there is a version in the pipe but i'm not sure how long it should take it might it, it ought to be out by march or april 2013 said somebody on the internet so there you go so yeah, the the lesson is that the best games for Androids are the games that you can only get for Android. I, I think there probably are examples that disprove what I'm saying, and, and certainly like going, geez, there's a sold PC game. You know, how do I get Doom on my my mobile? Like that's what Android's all about. But in my ex- mainstream experience, generically, iOS is the place to go. Well, there, yeah, I think the problem is I haven't really tried because nothing is. Nothing has presented itself uh, to me that it would be a worthwhile experience to to dig through what I've previously encountered as mountains of crap. You know, maybe that's different now. I hope it's different. I don't want it to to fail or not be good, but the App Store definitely goes out of its way to be good. But then there's there's the uh, currying done by Apple, the the, the where they turn down games and recently iPhone or, or iPad game, uh, which was uh, intended to be political commentary on the Syrian civil war, was turned down with some snarky comment by the the Apple people that you know video games are not where you need to have social commentary, and I guess that's going to be true within the uh, iOS ecosystem, but. I, I bring it up not because I really need feel a, a great need to have social commentary in my video games, but that I think there are probably going to be plenty of creative game designers who really don't want to work a year on a game and discover that they're they run into a wall set up by by Apple saying sorry no uh, I I don't agree with this. And the more you have stories like that the more people who, who might be of that bent will head towards uh, Android instead. This is probably another topic of whether political com- games are a ripe platform for political commentary. Well, and how good do they have to be <laughs> to, to have the political commentary sink in? You know, can it be a bad game and a good message and have it be a worthy thing to spend your time on? Yeah. Uh, the the other thing I wanted to to just tie off on, on the subject of sort of games and, and the time on games because it's burning a hole in my pocket is is this idea that I want the really good mobile games to be short and the comfort grinds to be long. 
you know, if I think about the way that I play games today, you know, I'm playing a lot of tanks or I'm playing a lot of some match three game or a lot of jetpack joyride. And then I intersperse that with really good, meaningful, intense, challenging games because you don't necessarily want to play one of those games on the subway, right? Right. But so hurry up and bring us Elder Scrolls online. <laughs> yeah. That's like the worst of all possible worlds. <laughs> in you know, in terms of in terms of life, not not in terms of how good the game is. Yeah, it's it's just there's an uncanny valley thing that I get lost at. It's like I, I love the fact that they're trying to reproduce a real world, but I don't want to dig through chests full of bread ends and and old shoes. Actually in the uh I found uh, Jonathan Blow posted on this on uh, the Witness blog about uh, the App Store curation, but it's actually part of the uh, iOS App Store's developer terms of service. The quote is, we view apps different than books or songs, which we do not curate. If you want to criticize a religion, write a book. If you want to describe sex, write a book or a song or create a medical app. It can get complicated, but we have decided not to allow certain kinds of content in the App Store. Well, I, I think Apple's always been very clear about the fact that they'll throw the hammer down and, and it can be arbitrary. It's the edges of that that get problematic, where somebody's doing something that might seem innocent. There, there are examples of this that I can't think of. Maybe Tom can think of another one where they get rejected and you go, that, I don't get that one. You know, and and I Apple, haven't been Apple doesn't as, comment on it. <laughs> I haven't been reading as many reports of people indignant that their app was uh, unreasonably rejected. Much worse, it seems to me, a, a few years ago. Part of that may well be that the developers have just figured out that when Apple wrote that in the terms of service, they meant it. And and so the, the cases which we still hear about are people who just feel like you know, smashing their face against the glass, uh, the glass window, just to make a point. And and of course, if you're doing a political commentary game, you are by definition trying to make a point. The point that that John Blow makes is why they say if you want to criticize religion, write a book. You know, obviously, banning books is is bad, and there's this history of uh, controversial books that have turned out uh, to be super important and had points and they've been controversial but you know the test of history is that it's it's come out on the side of books whereas video games don't have that history so easier to uh, think that when you say that about video games it's either on the one hand you have angry birds or game about you know, drone assassinations. Uh, True, but now just just to take Apple's point or side side of things, just for a moment though, it occurs to me that there is a a slight difference in kind for for games versus books, and one is that while books have a range, children's books to uh, adult books, by and large, kids actually just simply aren't going to be interested in. The you know the the older uh, adult aimed books that there'd be at a point which they might but but be, uh, but uh, there's very little uh, likelihood that you'd have uh, a seven year old looking at a, a a book and saying with just lots and lots of text and saying I'm going to plow through this because I want to get to the sex scene but video games are deliberately attractive and accessible and although you could create the game mechanics so that you know could, kids pretty much couldn't get into them 
that's usually not done. And so you might find a seven-year-old absent parents knowing what was going on or absent some other uh, rating system that, that actually kept them from being able to buy it, getting a game onto their iPhone that was you know, a, a game about sex or uh, uh, showing decapitation in the Syrian civil war. Yeah, but, but that's also, I mean, that's the equivalent to that is, is like, you know, adult magazines or... Well, well not uh, even that. I mean, imagine Fifty Shades of Grey, the video game, and what a, what a ruckus that would cause. But it, again, the, the difference there is sort of, and we started this about distribution. If, if you're going to, to get an adult magazine, children are generally not going to go into the store or to the section of the store that has that available, whereas you download it. Yeah, but no, no, but the, the Fifty Shades of Grey was on the end cap at the airport. I mean, it's sitting right there. Yeah, I suppose. But, uh, well, hopefully, hopefully, lar- largely, parents don't let their kids into the app store, period. I think they'd probably discover that their credit card was maxed out instantly well, if they it's, did. It's, yeah, $500,000 <laughs> on Smurf berries is what happens yes. when, when people let that happen. I mean, fundamentally, it's just, I think there's just this, this still this cultural, like, in, in summation bias that games are for kids. And that's right. That really hobbles. But let's save this for another episode. This is, I mean, I think sex. I agree. This is a, <laughs> a, a cool topic, and and we've spent. It, it's a diversion from this, but it, it'd be good to get into. The uh, the other thing, Tom, that I think you alluded to when we were talking earlier was the idea of free to play or social games using Facebook as a platform, and whether or not they're different games. You know, I almost wonder if. The Facebook games are sort of a blip in the story that that ends or, or culminates in Angry Birds. Well, I don't consider Angry Birds the same as Facebook games, mainly because Angry Birds is is Angry Birds is a, is a free to play uh, single player game, and uh, so yes, it's it's set up like many free to play games to get as you know much more frustrating so that if you don't buy the golden screaming eagle or whatever to get you through some of the harder levels you you may never you know randomly complete some levels and so that is how they're going to make their money but the facebook games the the source of all evil in the in the gaming world zynga set things up not just to be free to play and encourage you to buy things from them but also to use the social aspect of facebook itself to try to promote these games to your friends. But it's, it's my fervent hope that the sun is setting on this social anxiety model already. I sure hope so. Obviously, Zynga is losing some of its luster, at least on the stock market. I, what I was saying, though, was Farmville and these other games did, and what Angry Birds has done is it has dragged a whole demographic slice of people into gaming in a way that's very welcoming, and very low-key, very, very pop-cap. yes. Now, for me, the the main real distinction in the the Facebook Zynga style games is in their promotion, in the in the fact that that your timeline is being polluted by your friends playing Farmville and asking you to that or Mafia Wars and ask you to to do something for them. Whereas Angry Birds got to the huge size it was entirely on its own. You pointed out in an email that that PopCap does not seem to have really ridden the free-to-play or, or mobile uh, market as much as you might expect, given that they 
you know, started out as a casual gaming company. Obviously, Bejeweled. They they were Rovio before Rovio existed, right? Yes. Uh, they got bought by EA, didn't they? Maybe that was a problem. <laughs> I, I, I believe they did. And it's probably too simple a snarky comment to say that could be the reason, but it, it actually quite deadly serious could be the All reason. All this talk of, uh, of social Facebook games has reminded me that both Brian and Tom, I've I have not clicked you your cow, yeah, to uh, to join my pasture, and you haven't accepted. Uh, I I haven't been online in a while. <laughs> I have, I invited you months ago, a long time, maybe a year ago. I'll, I'll check that been? now. How, how do uh, I how do I how do I check the Facebook again? What's what's the way to do that? Uh, www.thefacebook.com <laughs> It's sort of these threads that that you know come in and, and complicate it, and the ones that are most recent are the ones that are, are you know freshest in our minds, and that's the the free to play, which is a euphemism as we've discussed for unlimited income from a single player, and uh, the the social anxiety models of gaming are two that it's it's not clear yet you know how separable they they are or will be in the long run. Certainly, we haven't seen, and I've, I've commented on this before, any game platform outside of Steam pick up a free-to-play game. And to me, that'll be a really interesting moment when you see one of these games on a console. Yeah, I mean, there are free games on, on, on console distribution platforms, but they're not, it's not the same microtransaction. Yeah, none of them are selling Smurf berries. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I isn't... Though there is DLC that right. approaches Smurf Murders. I guess that's a good point. I mean, they're, they're tasting. But again, the point is not that you can collect 5 bucks or 10 bucks from somebody. It's that one guy can give you 200 bucks, you know, without breaking a sweat if that's what he wants to do. That's like the, the in, in your mind, the, the possibility of whales is what defines uh, a free-to-play Yeah, game. It's, it's, what, it's absolutely what defines and what I think establishes the way the gameplay of these these games evolve, even if it's a good game, uh, like we uh, we believe that, that World of Tanks is. There's there's a there's really no limit to the amount of money you can pour into the game, if that's what you want to do. Sadly, true. It always offends me when I when I buy a game and then am immediately given the opportunity to spend sixty dollars on buying in-game things. Yeah, it's a little rude. I mean, I've I've gotten to the point, and I think this is a problem for game developers now. And I mentioned this before, where Players won't download a game if they ha- they see that you know rate card for Smurf berries somewhere in the in the, the app store description. Right, at, at least with uh, the the pure free to play, you have the option of of doing it without paying them anything. So uh, distribution. I, mean, I think the the point here in this discussion was just to talk about the way that. These you know, this this has evolved over time. It's mostly context for our, our, our listeners because we talk about this a lot, and I think there, there are some common assumptions that we have about the way that this has evolved and the way it's becoming more open over time that if we didn't sit down and talk about it once, it uh, might not be crystal clear to everybody. So I think it's worth worth going over this uh, landscape, right, guys? Yeah, we got it out of the way. Now let's move on to move on to some better stuff. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's just talk about XCOM for three episodes. <laughs> how, how long? How late were you up playing XCOM? How, how many hours have you clocked on that bad boy? Uh, well, I restarted. Uh, at, are you playing? Are you playing Iron Man? Uh, I'm playing Iron Man on easy. 
It's Good a, man. It's a little bit too easy. Good man. But also normal. That's okay. Normal it gets hard. was a little too hard. <laughs> It'll break your heart. <laughs> once, once I discovered those uh, those spider things that that ate dead people and turned them into yes. uh, talk about talk about terror and gaming. There's some right there. I was thinking about that when you spoke about it. Like, I really did feel horror when that that whole thing started running away from me. Yeah. Well, and and also just like not really knowing how to play, and so you know getting armor but not really upgrading my weapons and then not really upgrading my ships uh so getting into these situations where i was just totally unprepared uh to deal with what was put in front of me and just having people die over and over again Uh, and then but you you don't sound bitter about it which is what i like well i reloaded the saves because i was playing on on normal and now i know better and uh i'm ready for iron man fantastic tom what have you been playing what have I been? Oh well, thank you very much. I've been playing uh, stupid ten million on iOS, and it's very interesting that when you achieve ten million, a, a, the the meter that you're tr- trying to hit is labeled freedom, <laughs> <laughs> and and a door opens, and you get to go out the door. And you watch your little eight-bit uh, figure stand on a cliff with a beautiful eight-bit sunset or sunrise in the distance, uh, and it plays the credits. <laughs> you've 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 achieved freedom from the relentless uh, uh, hamster wheel, uh, and and yet I did have a good time. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed that one too. I didn't play the other one. What was it? Dungeon crawl? Is that what it was? Uh, Dungeon raid. Raid. Yes, have, it's called Dungeon Raid, Raid. and, and you, I'm still liking that one too. I, uh, uh, it's it, it has an interesting little sense of humor. It uh, writes a little uh, intro for you to each each dungeon you go into. Now you never played, uh, boy, Puzzle Quest, right, Jim? No. Yeah, because you 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 are uh, you're philosophically opposed opposed to the match three games anyway. I remember I came over to your house with my DS, and this is why I don't play the game anymore, Tom. I came over to your house, we sat down, we played some matches against each other, and you just absolutely humiliated me. I think you intentionally stopped trying after a couple rounds, and you still shellacked me. That's sort of like me and you with letterpress, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) me and everybody with letterpress. Yes, thank you though for underscoring that, Jim. I appreciate it. Uh, but I need, uh, to, I need to, to send you a, a game invite on Letterpress. I really, my nieces are now beating me, so I think I need to try you. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Just just step on up. The, the uh, water's fine. The other, uh, I I mentioned it in the, in the uh, the last episode, but uh, since then I've played the rest of The Walking Dead, and uh, it was a winner. Uh, it was a game that was. Uh, uh, I played the the first episode, and then every episode after that, uh, Krista was right there with me, watching me play the whole time. So it's very uh, uh, screw that. That's my new game friendly. of the year. Let's re-record this episode. Yeah. <laughs> spectator friendly. Excellent. Good to hear. And also a new use for wikis uh, because there's so many branching paths at the end of that. Uh, I just looked up what what would happen if I took the different path instead of playing the game. It's sparing yourself the yeah the. The tyranny of permutations. Yeah, sparing myself the uh, the disappointment of finding out that uh, it, you know there were the paths that branch and ended up in the same place. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that was one of the criticisms I heard was that there really isn't that much free will in the game, the way it's constructed. Well, you can decide, you know, if someone dies or if they leave your party. And then towards the end, in the last episode, there's there's more there's more references to things that you've done in the past. Uh, so you definitely get different content depend depending on what you do. But it's uh, I, th- I think, in you know, in the original Mass Effect, which was the only one I've played so far, but you would actually, you know, get different endings depending on the way you played. Whereas I think the endings that you get in The Walking Dead, they all end up in the same place with the uh, s- slight variations. Cool. Anything else noteworthy come out of your foray into the uh, game backlog? Well, I've been playing Halo 4 with, with Krista. I mentioned that. Um, uh, she's playing Assassin's Creed 3. Yeah, I, I loved her post on the Facebook, which was um, stuff I stuff I, I climbed in the game that, that is in Harvard Square or whatever. No, was, yeah, we were walking back from Haymarket and saw uh, a church that she had climbed. And That's of course, cool. yeah. the, the number one technological uh, advancement in Assassin's Creed 3 is uh, animal petting technology. <laughs> awesome. You can, you can pet dogs. You can, you can feed pigs. Uh, I don't know what else. Oh, they got to they they add something, right? Yep. And then I'm, I've been playing, as I said, a bunch of XCOM. And uh, I think... Uh, at this point, I've watched Krista play enough Assassin's Creed Three. I don't even know if I need to play it, but Dishonored is uh, is also in the backlog. Mm-hmm. I'll be interesting to see how you compare that with uh, Deus Ex. I will do that. Cool. Well, guys, thanks for the uh, session today. Yeah, um, Jim. I think we may want to do uh, the indie episode next time around. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, with that weekend, I'll have time. We got a heavily pixelated axe to grind uh, on the subject. That we can that we can go through. Well, thanks, guys. Have a good uh, evening. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye. Talk to you soon. This has been the Game Theory Podcast, episode fourteen. If you have comments about this episode, contact Jim on the Facebook or email us at gametheorypodcast at gmail dot com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>